Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the acclaimed movie All of Us Strangers, starring Paul Mescal and Andrew Scott. Stream the new Hulu original limited series, We Were the Lucky Ones, with Joey King and Logan Lerman. And don't forget about Grey's Anatomy. Every Grey's episode ever is now streaming on Hulu. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. Kia ora, ko William Ray tēnei, no mai ki te hipi pango. Welcome to Black Sheep. There is a wild New Zealand boy, George Wilder is his name. If you were born in New Zealand before the 1970s, you probably already know the story for this episode just from the opening notes of the song. For the benefit of my fellow millennials, Zoomers and Gen X, this is The Wild New Zealand Boy by the Howard Morrison Quartet. And that is how he got his name, The Wild New Zealand Boy. It's based on a true story, the story of the most famous fugitive in New Zealand history. George Wilder evaded the police for a total of nearly nine months in three separate escapes from prison in the early 1960s. He became so popular that people would leave food out on their windowsills for him. Later on, he became good mates with the famous author, Morris Shadbolt. And from the speeding train, he left the wild New Zealand But George Wilder never sought the spotlight. In fact, he hasn't spoken publicly in more than 50 years. He's still alive today, and we did talk to some people close to him just on the off chance he might say yes to an interview. But we hit a dead end. And to be honest, I'm not surprised. I'm far from the first person he's turned down for an interview. He was living in a very remote part of the Wairarapa when when I tried to approach him. This is Tim Baum. He's an actor and writer. A lot of you probably already know him from Outrageous Fortune or The Almighty Johnsons, not to mention Shortland Street. Oh, look at you. You look great. Did you get my flowers? They were from you. Oh, God, they couldn't have come at a better time. Well, that is me. You know, I always had great timing. (laughs) But before all that, Tim wrote a short play about George Wilder. It was one of his first ever dramatic projects. So I was at... Drama school, New Zealand drama school, Toy Fakari, in 1988. And we were the first year that was given a task of writing a monologue about a famous New Zealander. I, I told my parents, I said, oh, you know, I've got this, this thing I've got to do. I, I don't really know who to do it on. And my dad, he was just sitting in his armchair, as he did with his sherry, going, went, George Wilder, do it on George Wilder. <laughs> and then he started laughing. And then he started telling me what... He knew of this person, and I went, oh, that sounds like fun, you know, that sounds like a, a fun story. Later on in the 1990s, Tim decided to turn his monologue into a full play. I did want to tell George's story as a pure biography, but as I was taking it from drama school out into the professional environment, I reached out to him to see if um, he was OK with that, and and he wasn't. Um, he didn't tell me that directly, he, he got... Uh, it was a very clear message sent through some friends of his. In no way it was a, a hostile thing, but they were very clear when I reached out that I wasn't welcome 
And that was at that point that I went, okay, well, I'm not going to tell the George Wilder story. But on the other hand, I, I told a story that was very much like his story. Tim Baum's play is called The Ballad of Jimmy Costello, and like he said, it's heavily based on George Wilder's life. All the things that made him a great folklore character, escaping from prison and breaking into people's houses and leaving notes, the flip side of that was a real tragedy that was going on in the most horrible conditions in Mount Eden prison. So the more I researched it, the more I realised that this was a far more, kind of more important story, if you like, about injustice as much as it is about what the public want to celebrate. They want to celebrate the fun things. They don't really want to know about the bad stuff. And in the process of writing his play, Tim Baum became the closest thing we have to a George Wilder expert, which is why he's our guest for today's show. Our story starts in the late 1940s. George Wilde is about 12 or 13 years old, living with his mum and his three younger siblings in Auckland. His dad had just got home to New Zealand after fighting in the Second World War. And around this point in time, something happened in George's family. We're not exactly sure what it was. Tim Baum could only uncover a few fragments of the story. Some major event happened within the family. Um, I think it had to do with his father coming back from the war and according to police records, uh, there was probably some alcoholism involved and all sorts of things. And the family kind of uh, blew apart. And George being the oldest, uh, he was about 12 at the time, I think he probably bore the brunt of it. And he had a massive falling out with his father. My understanding is that his father was so um, either disturbed from the war or, or upset about something that he said to George that he wasn't ever to see his mother again, which is a fairly ridiculous thing to say. And um, George left, left home, as I understand it. So he's sort of left home around 12, 13. So it sounds like George Wilder's teenage years were pretty tough. He spent most of them as a farm worker, bouncing around different spots in the North Island. And even without his family background, this was an interesting time to be a teenager in New Zealand. It was a straight-laced time, you know. It was, everyone wanted to knuckle down after the war and, and, and create a perfect life. The quarter-acre dream and the, 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 the nuclear family and, and all those things. And inevitably in that situation, you're going to have people that kick against that and... I think George Wilder was one of those people. Because this is famously the era where sort of the concept of the teenager is born. Exactly. He was the original New Zealand James Dean, Rebel Without a Cause. You know, that's what he was. You know what kind of drunken brawls those parties turn into. It's no place for kids. You're tearing me apart! What? You, you say one thing, he says another, and everybody changes back again! Rebel Without a Cause, by the way, is a classic 1950s film about suburban teenagers getting into crime and alcohol and stuff. It was reflecting a growing angst in the Western world about rebellious teenagers, and in a lot of ways, George Wilder fit that stereotype. He was, the, I think, the original New Zealand teenager of the 50s that was kicking against everything. Not, not in some great political statement by any means. He was just trying to survive, you know, having had a some tragedy within your family and your family falling apart, 
there's a lot of pain involved there, and I think he carried that. This is my supposition, but I think he carried that into his teenage years, and so began his um, journey into kind of some petty crime, and things escalated from there. George Wilder's first prosecutions were for pretty small-time stuff. It started like stealing money from milk bottles. You're probably not old enough to remember this, William, but you put your money in the milk bottle at the end of the gate and the milkman drops it off and takes the money. Well, George and his team thought, well, you know, it's just sitting there. Yeah, I'm only just old enough to remember when milk was still delivered, actually. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So... He, as you say, he, he comes up to before the court on quite a wide range of offences, stuff like car conversions, house yep. and shop breaking and and theft. I don't quite understand what they mean by car conversions. I presume it means stuff like taking the licence plates off or something like that. No, it's just the official term for stealing a car. Oh, OK. Converting it from the legitimate owner into your own ownership. <laughs> That's what car conversion is. He seems to be basically living out of these cars. Like yep. it's, it's not just that he's stealing them for, you know, joyriding and that kind of thing. Uh, well, I think it was both. My understanding is he would joyride these cars into the back blocks of, of where he was living at the time, and he, he, he moved around a lot. And then, yeah, he went, well, I'll sleep in the car. So we've got a picture of George Wilder and his late teens. He's doing odd jobs on farms, probably pretty menial labour. Every now and again he steals a car and drives it out into the middle of nowhere, lives off his wits in the bush for a while. Then he heads back into town and starts all over again. A cop who dealt with him at the time later told a reporter this. I thought he was a type who just wanted to live in the bush and who didn't want to work. Yeah, I thought he seemed not quite grown up. Makes sense. You know, you're you're hurt, you're you're wounded from a a trauma in your family, and you're going to go. No, I'm going to live life on my own terms. All this stuff caught up with George Wilder in 1958, when he was still only 19. He was convicted on 25 charges of car conversion, five charges of breaking and entering, and seven charges of theft. All up, he got two years jail time. He completed that sentence and was released, but within a few months he went on to another crime spree. Pretty much the same story, stealing cars, breaking into homes and shops. He just wasn't ready to settle down, right? So he just was probably doing his time and went, oh, well, I've done that now, I'll just do it, get back to what I was doing and get away with it. I mean, I think there's a quote where he says something like, may as well be hanged for a sheep as a lamb or something like that. He said that to a judge, <laughs> yeah. Oh, well. Might as well hang for a sheep better than a lamb. As a second-time offender, George got treated more seriously. In 1961, he was given a four-year sentence at New Plymouth Prison. It's a very solemn place. The cells are like... They're almost like being in a submarine. It's, it's a grim piece of architecture. And I think he's just... He was a kid, and he's going... I can see a way over that wall, um, I'm off. And I don't, I don't know exactly how he did it. He just got helped over the wall and took his chances. This is where the legend of George Wilder gets started. He had plenty of experience fending for himself out in the bush and he put that experience to work. 
He evaded the police all over the central North Island for more than two months during the autumn of 1962, with the newspapers following on for every twist and turn. George Wilder scaled the 30 feet high wall to make his dramatic escape early Thursday evening. A small car crashed through a police roadblock at high speed during a widespread search for an escaped prisoner at New Plymouth tonight. Senior police officers consider that escaper George Wilder might be responsible for a series of car conversions and breaks. Today, searchers scrambled through tangled bush around the Burgess Park area and along the rain-swollen banks of the Waifakaiho River. But no further traces of the 23 A car taken last night from Topor might have been converted by prison escaper George Wilder, 24. Eight police officers and two police dogs with their handlers continued their search for Wilder at the southern end of Lake Topor this morning. And when he was finally captured more than two months later, it was national news. One of the biggest police searches in New Zealand history ended on July 21st when New Zealand prison escaper George Wilder, after travelling 1,620 miles during 65 days of freedom, was captured at Mangakino. Wilder was seen breaking from cover by Constable C. Hamilton of Topor. Constable Hamilton gave chase, but Wilder dashed down a 40-foot bank and disappeared. He was found four hours later, hiding in a nearby hole off a logging road. They took him back to jail once more, his ego to destroy. So back to breaking rocks, he went the wild New Zealand George Wilder's sentence was increased to seven years, partly as punishment for escaping, partly for the crimes he committed while on the loose. He was sent to Mount Eden Prison in Auckland this time, put to work breaking rocks in the prison quarry. But George didn't want to spend seven years in prison. In fact, he barely lasted seven months before his second jailbreak. It's hard to know exactly who did what, but there were there was him and three other blokes, Frank... Matic, Ruben Awa, and another bloke. I've forgotten his name for now. It's Patrick Wiedewena. My understanding is George took took the lead on this one. Last time George got out, he somehow scaled a 30-foot wall that's about 10 metres metric around New Plymouth Prison. But the old Mount Eden Prison was even more formidable. It was a fortress. Seriously, go look at it sometime. It's like a medieval castle. George Wilder's second escape needed a lot more planning. People figure things out, people make things, they improvise, and he got hold of what they call a homemade key. Basically, it was some piece of wire that was fashioned in such a way that it could actually unlock the cells. But this wire key didn't work on Wilder's own cell door. For that, he had a different solution. Somehow got hold of a small piece of hexel blade and he um, sawed his way through this lock. It took most of the night. Part of the reason it took all night was that he kept getting interrupted. Screws, uh, you know, wardens doing uh, patrols every, I think it's 20 minutes, so he would have these 20-minute increments of time where he could saw, 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 and then wait. Saw, 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 and then wait. Saw, 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 and then wait. He unlocked his mates. They then overpowered a warden, tied him up, 
and got his keys. They unlocked themselves through various grills and gates inside the prison, got out into the yard. They'd tied sheets together, classic movie stuff, boosted on top of each other's shoulders and cut through the wire netting at the top of the exercise yard, hoisted themselves up with the sheets and bolted over the wall, followed by some shotgun blasts from the guards in the tower who spotted them. And they hit the ground running and they all went their separate ways. And the other three guys got rounded up within a couple of days. But George um, headed for the hills. There's rumour that he um, converted a boat on the Monaco, I think, and boosted himself across the harbour, which obviously doesn't leave a great trail, and um, disappeared down country. It was 172 days, more than six months, before the police caught George Wilder. In those 172 days, George went from vaguely notorious to, I guess you'd say, a national obsession. We interrupt this program to bring you an urgent request from the police department. You better come home, Mr. George Wilder, to your money jail. You can stay away forever. While he was on the run, the Howard Morrison Quartet released this song. We don't know exactly how popular it was, because there were no nationwide music charts at the time, but I think it'd be safe to say that if there were charts, it would have been in the top ten, if not number one. He made the police wilder and wilder. was later banned from broadcast on public radio, probably because it made the authorities look bad. I actually went down into RNZ's archive to find our copy of this album, but when I pulled out the vinyl, the track had been physically scratched out with a razor blade and scribbled over with a yellow pencil just to make sure no random DJ played it accidentally. The reason this escape became so famous wasn't just how long it was. It was how dramatic it was. There were so many near misses. At one point, a car believed to be stolen by George Wilder crashed through a roadblock at Tucano near Lake Topo. A policeman fired two shots at the car, but both missed. At another point, he's supposed to have driven off the side of the Mangakino Dam to escape the cops. And it wasn't all car chases. George Wilder was reported to have escaped the police on bicycles and on horseback. I should say, a lot of the stories about Wilder during this escape are unconfirmed. Some are probably true, some just folklore. But the folklore came out of things that actually happened. There's one point where his shoes were falling apart and he managed to steal the shoes of a searcher that was close by, things like that. They're all things that I actually believe are true. One of the most famous stories is that he joined one of the search parties that was looking for him through the bush. He got caught out. You know, he didn't he didn't want to join his own search party. They'd got close to him. They'd probably encircled him. And he just went, okay. everyone looks like me because they're all dressed in bush shirts and the cops all look look like him. So he just was walking along beside one of them and they they said, oh, it's a bugger looking for this George Wiley bastard, isn't it? And he went, yeah, mate, yeah, it, is, it is, it is. And then just quietly peeled off. 
I believe it's true. I've, I've chosen to believe that that's absolutely true. But there are definitely stories which, I mean, George Wilder himself has said are completely made up. It was interesting. At the time that I was doing that play, which was back in the late 90s, and those over 40 went, that's a lot like George Wilder, isn't it? And I'd go, yeah, yeah, there's a lot there. And they go, yeah, well, I know George Wilder because he, he stole my grandmother's bicycle, you know. Everyone wanted to have a story that they could own about him. And look, some of those stories Tim heard are probably true. George Fielder's escape by breaking into batches, stealing food, then vanishing back into the bush. Some people said they found notes from him apologising for stealing from their houses and pointed out that he'd cleaned up after himself. Although, I should say, George Wilder himself has said many of those stories aren't true. Um, Here's how he put it in his only ever sit-down interview, which was with a journalist from the Sunday Times in 1970. I never left a note to anyone in my life. And the only reason I tidied up these places when I left was to avoid detection, naturally. When the police are on your tail, you don't leave the signs lying around for them. And what this quote shows is that George Wilder never wanted to become famous. In fact, he apparently always hated that Howard Morrison quartet song about him. After all, the more famous he got, the harder the police tried to catch him. His task was to disappear. And the more he tried to disappear, the more people wrote songs. And that's what happens with folklore, isn't it? And p- people elevate small facts into big fictions. I mean, there are stories of people deliberately leaving out food for him, like to, to mm. actually help him. That's true. Yeah. That's, that's definitely true. They wanted to support him. It, it, was a, it was a national craze. And people would leave scones out on the windowsill ostensibly to cool them. But if George Wilder ran by and had one, they would feel like a million dollars. You know, they, Again, they would have ownership on this story. The early 60s were pretty staid times in New Zealand. The Beatles were yet to land, I think. It was still six o'clock closing and all those things. So this young kid who was, for want of a better term, thumbing his nose at the authorities and hadn't done anything bad, they wanted him to stay out. He was this um, symbol of freedom. Like Tim Baum said, part of the reason George Wilder became so popular is that he wasn't a violent criminal. He fit that ideal of a crook with a heart of gold, and that narrative got started right at the beginning of his escape. They tied up this warden, and they gagged him, and the story is, and I do believe this is true, they moved off at a pace to go and get out of the rest of the prison, but George doubled back and loosened the guy's gag because he was worried that he wouldn't be able to breathe properly. That kind of sums him up as a character. He was out for himself to, to, to get where he wanted to be, which was anywhere but at prison, but he wasn't going to, it wasn't going to be at all costs. And uh, there was a certain um, empathy and, and humanity to him. So anyway, the stories of George Wilder's antics, invented or true, were thrilling the country, but they were infuriating the authorities. From their perspective, George Wilder was an embarrassment. The sooner he was caught, the better. And on April 9th, they very nearly got him. The first positive sighting of George Wilder for many days came at about 7.45 this morning. It started when Constable DG Norton and his partner were motoring along Scenic Drive in the Waitakere Ranges near Auckland. They spotted a car ahead of them, which matched the description of a vehicle recently stolen from Gisborne. The 
car turned up Quinn's Road and we decided to follow it. As he went up the road, we could see skid marks as though the car had been speeded up. We chased after it and saw the car pull into a carport at a house near the end of the road. A man got out wearing grey trousers, hat and a sports coat. He turned and looked at us and I could see it was wilder. He dived into the nearby bush and I ran after him. I could hear him thrashing about in the bush ahead of me. But then things became quiet. So I left to arrange for a dog to be brought to the scene. The police and their dogs tracked George Wilder through the bush for miles. By the end of the day, more than 40 men were part of the search. But George Wilder slipped through their fingers yet again. And this must have been a bit of a wake-up call for George. From this point, he went to ground. There wasn't a single sighting of him for three months. But all good things have to come to an end. It took six months to capture him, this master of escape. In a bushman's hut, he was surprised. Overconfidence was obviously his mistake. <laughs> when asked if he... In early July, a wildlife ranger noticed a drop in the number of wood pigeon, kiriru, in the Runanga bush near Rangataiki on the Napier Topo Road. He knew there was an old hut in the area, and he put two and two together. Clearly, someone was hiding out in that hut and poaching the birds. So he called up the police, and together with three officers, he went to take a look at this hut. It was a cold and rainy night. They drove along a little side track through the tussock. When the hut came into view, they could see some light shining through the windows. The police slowly crept up to the door. They could hear a radio playing inside. There was a pot on the fire, onions and potatoes boiling up, a freshly caught trout hanging near the door. And there, on the floor, curled up in a sleeping bag, was George Wilder. The cops walked in softly, and before he woke up, they slipped a pair of handcuffs around his wrists. So in the end, it was quite a, um, a sedate sort of apprehension, and he just went, oh, well, I'm nicked. Been a good seven months. When asked if he had much to say to this, how George replied, All I heard me want to rule on air, beat the starry skies above. Fails me in. <clears throat> so back to face the judge again. The and when he did face the judge once more, the authorities threw the book at him. That's when it starts to go really bad. Each time he escaped, obviously, they um, added more time to his original sentence. His original sentence, I think, in New Plymouth was four years from memory. When he got rumbled there and taken to Mount Eden, they, they, it got added to about seven years. He escaped from Mount Eden, he comes back and they throw another 
five or six years at him, so he's suddenly doing 13 years. Now, he hasn't done any anything worse than what he did at the beginning, which was stealing a few cars and et cetera. But now he's facing 13 years in the worst conditions that you can imagine in Mount Eden in the East Wing basement block, which is... Well, yeah, the- we should take some time to talk about this because Mount Eden is an absolute... like it, uh, As historian Mark Darby points out in his book on Mount yeah. Eden, it was, outda- it was outdated when it was built. <laughs> yeah, yeah. A- absolutely. And because George Wilder was this now renowned escape artist, um, they decided to treat him as they would, for want of a better term, machine gun murderer. That's not an exaggeration, by the way. George Wilder was locked up in the same cell block as John Gillies and Ron Jorgensen, who literally used a machine gun to murder two people in Bassett Road, Remuera, in December 1963. We've talked about it in a previous episode of Black Sheep. George, the car converter from the back blocks of Rotorua, wherever it was that he was hanging out as a teenager, suddenly next to these guys, who have pulled the trigger on a machine gun and killed people. And so he was housed with the supposed worst of the worst in what was known as the East Wing Basement Block. And these cells were six feet, six by eight, I think. Then there's no natural light. The, the conditions are just appalling. And he's suddenly sitting there going, I've got to be here for 13 years. This was a dark time for George Wilder. He talked about it to that journalist who interviewed him for the Sunday Times in 1970. I just can't stand being cooped up. I often ask myself, why sit here like a zombie? I was a lot younger then. Probably made the feeling of futility so much more unbearable. The sentences just became more and more hopeless from four years to seven years. I couldn't see any future being locked up all those years, so I was constantly on the lookout for a chance to escape. He kept looking for that chance for about a year and a half. By this point, he's about 27 years old. And when it finally came, it was courtesy of two of his fellow inmates, John Gillies, one of the notorious machine gun murderers, and another inmate, a bank robber called Len Evans. And the three of them um, engineered an escape, which involved a sawn-off shotgun. And apparently the sawn-off shotgun had been smuggled into the prison in bits and pieces and then reassembled, and it was hidden behind a toilet or something. It seems likely the gun got into the prison thanks to John Gillies, who had deep connections in the Auckland criminal underworld. The jailbreak happened on the 11th of June, 1965. Len Evans was arriving back from a court appearance, escorted by a 47-year-old warden called Daniel Kavanagh. John Gillies stepped out from behind the toilet. He threatened to shoot Kavanagh unless he unlocked Evans, George Wilder and himself. Marched Kavanagh out at gunpoint to the back gates of Mount Eden with the brilliant plan of converting a car and making a high-speed getaway. Unfortunately, the plan went a little awry when there were no cars at the back gates. There was only this old flatbed prison truck from the 1930s that had a top speed of 12 miles an hour. 
So George, who was part of it because he was the driver, um, he floored it best as he could, and um, they sort of spluttered their way up the hill into the Mount Eden. You've got to imagine George's heart was racing. This was a far more serious situation than he'd ever been in before. He was in cahoots with a murderer. They'd taken a man hostage at gunpoint, and now their carefully planned escape had gone badly wrong. A sentry spotted the truck chugging away from the prison and levelled a shotgun at the escapers. The shot missed, but they didn't get far before George swerved and lost control. Off-roaded it into the section of an old woman that took out the washing line and ended up holed up in her house with her adult son and, and the prison guard. And that's where the plan kind of came to an abrupt end and they were quickly surrounded. It was the first call-out for the newly formed Armed Offenders Squad. Shortly after the news broke, a reporter from the New Zealand Herald managed to find the phone number for the house and dialed it up. He reported the conversation that followed in the paper. Just to be clear, this isn't a recording. We've had this conversation voice acted. This is George Wilder. The reporter asked what was going on, and George explained how he'd escaped with Gillies and Evans and ended up in the house with the three hostages. Are you armed? Yes, we've got a sawn-off shotgun. Have you got any ammunition? We've got enough. If you use this gun, we'll only use it once. The reporter asked what they wanted. George said they wanted a car and a head start to escape. How will you get out to it? We'll just march out. Any interference and Mr Kavanagh will be the first to get it. The old lady is safe. We, we won't touch her at all. This doesn't seem like you, George. Why are you doing it? I'm doing 13 years. They call me a harmless burglar. Why should I be doing 13 years? After that conversation was over, the reporter immediately called the police to give them the phone number for the house. A few minutes later, 80-year-old Mrs Jameson was released unharmed. There were several tense hours of standoff. John Gilly's lawyer, Kevin Ryan, came up with a megaphone, urging the men inside to surrender. And he seems to have leaned pretty hard on the fact that he knew John Gillies was a heavy drinker. So a bottle of whiskey and a bottle of gin, apparently later, um, those guys came out, surrendered themselves and went back to jail. And at that point, it got really bad because what did the authorities do? They went, well, you did it again. Um, we're going to give you another six years. So his 13-year sentence ended up being almost 19 years. And that, at the time, was the longest finite sentence that any person in New Zealand history had ever been given. It was, you know, and we have to go wind the clock back and go, what what started this? Stealing the odd car, breaking the odd house, petty theft. A few years later, he's, he's facing 19 years in that terrible place. Dark times ahead. In his play, The Ballad of Jimmy Costello, Tim Baum illustrates these dark times with a letter from Jimmy to his mother. While he was working on his play, Tim did a lot of research into George's experience of prison. 
He didn't want to go into details, but he thinks this fictional letter is a good representation of George Wilder's real thoughts and feelings. Dear Mum, how are you? You said you were wondering how I am? Well, I'm very not good. I've been festering strongly for about a week now, and at any moment I could blow up. Oh, how I wish I could. I don't dare, though, because I'd be as good as dead if they ever certified me. Anybody who attacks a rodent is automatically diagnosed as mad. And I've heard so many stories about the evil deeds of those white-coated monsters with their needles. Living nightmares. My eyesight is going haywire, Mum. Because there's nothing of any distance to focus on in here. Everything is no more than nine feet in any direction. My little planet. The tombstone. It's making me go blind. And deaf from all the noise of all the madness. Some are losing it now. Frank went. Frank Nash. But I'm hanging on, Mum. Yeah. I'm still dreaming, yeah, so that must be okay. Hey. My dreams are full of chases. Cops and guns and blood. Swimming across wild rivers through miles of bush and running over paddocks. Sometimes I get shot and I just pull the bullets out like prickles. I never get caught. I just wake up. And as I leave the dream, I can look down and see all the cops standing around puzzled, saying, Where's the bugger gone now? (laughs) All I have to do is wake up to the sounds of all the madness. Locked away and forgotten. Out of sight to go rotten. One thing you could do for me, Mum. Could you send us a cheap folding map of the world to put on my wall? Might make this place feel bigger somehow. George Wilder's public image went sour. His third escape didn't fit the story of a good-hearted rogue. He'd joined up with a notorious killer and threatened to shoot a prison guard. He'd helped take an old lady hostage. Just like it said in that letter, locked away and forgotten out of sight, to go rotten. But then help uh, arrives in the form of a prison visitor by the name of Gracie Shaw. So she's a, an elderly Christian lady. Part of her calling in life was to visit people in prison that didn't have visitors otherwise, and apparently George was of that um, ilk at the time. She sort of would visit him uh, regularly and, and befriended him and wanted to help him because she she didn't think that he'd got a fair deal. So then she um, was obviously a very motivated, determined woman and she um, petitioned people in the, what they called the literati at the time, people like Maurice Shabbat, to say, hey, this guy's, this guy's rotting away in jail and, and, and it's not, not fair and he needs help and I think he's a person that, that deserves some support. And Maurice Shabbat, you know, quite a renowned author at the time, went to visit George and started up a relationship. 
and started up a petition to work towards getting George Wilder an early parole. This effort to get clemency started small. They got him charcoal and paper so he could pass his time sketching. And it turned out he was really good. His pictures were published in the newspapers. I've actually put a couple of them up on our website if you want to take a look. More and more of those figures in the literati got on board to lobby for his release. The famous artist Colin McCann gave him painting lessons. Eventually, he was offered a scholarship by an art school in the USA and completed assignments sent to him by airmail. He'd knuckled down to be what you'd call a model prisoner. He was drawing, he was uh, worked a braille machine in there, so he would convert um, books into braille for the Blind Society. He was trying to make good use of his time. And through a lot of a lot of correspondence between Shab Bolt and other people, um, they did manage to get him a, an early parole in 1969. It took some time to process the paperwork, but on June 20th, 1970, George Wilder's parole began. Two months later, he gave his first and only real interview with a journalist, that Sunday Times piece we were quoting earlier. The reporter drove him out to the prison, and George Wilder stared at the gates and said this. That's one joint I don't ever want to see the inside of again. It gives me the creeps just looking at it. I'd rather put a gun to my head than go back in there. I'll never forget June 20th, that's for sure. I wanted to scream for joy. I wanted to turn somersaults. But like a lot of ex-prisoners, George Wilder found it hard to adjust to life outside. And maybe he had it harder than most. After a while, he decided to leave Auckland. He wrote to a friend talking about the pressure he felt in the city. I am so worried. I just can't relax. I didn't want to come back to Auckland for as long as I can help. There's too many characters there for my liking. They always seem to be finding me as by accident. And there are so many crackpots to whom I am just a curiosity piece. He was just determined not to get into trouble. But he was also feeling kind of harassed. Um, some of the police officers were, you know, really on his tail, trying to make sure that he knew that he was being watched at all times. That I think that generated a, a certain paranoia and, and stress on him. Um, he had the some of the crims wanting him to, you know, do a great heist. Um, and at some point, a safecracker by the name of Trevor Nash co-opted him and, yeah, he, he uh, fell off the wagon, so to speak, and ended up sought after by the police once again. Trevor Nash was a pretty famous criminal in his own right. He'd previously been jailed for the 1956 waterfront payroll robbery. That's probably the single biggest heist in New Zealand history. Trevor and George seem to have gone on a small crime spree, robbing houses and shops. In one robbery, they stole a bunch of guns, including pistols, rifles and submachine guns. News that the serial prison escaper George Wilder was on the run from the police yet again dominated the headlines. But this time it didn't take the police long to find him. They sprung these two guys in a, in a batch near Coromandel, I think. George got away. <laughs> Trevor didn't. George Wilder ran off into the bush. He stole a small dinghy, rode it across the Firth of Thames and vanished. But he wasn't on the run for very long, and then he was kind of pinned down in a, in a cabin at a motel in Rotorua. 
armed police used a megaphone to urge George Wilder to surrender, but he refused. He had a a gun with him and he held these two cops at gunpoint. The police, they didn't feel threatened, they felt worried for him. There's quite a clear connection that there was only one bullet in the gun and at, at that point he wasn't intending it for either of the police. Eventually, a local lawyer went into the batch to talk to him. We don't know what was said, but 45 minutes later, George Wilder handed over his gun and surrendered. And he was taken back into custody, and at this time, um, Paremaremo prison had been finished. And so he had to go and serve out the rest of his time there. George Wilder would spend another three years in jail. For his friends, it was a tragedy. Here's how Grace Shaw put it. Remember, she was the woman who'd visited George in Mount Eden Prison. The system failed him. We, his friends, failed him. And in Perimoremo today, he believes he failed us all. He's retreated into his shell and refuses to see even me. Neighbours immediately mistrusted. The pleasant, helpful man next door when they realised he was George Wilder. Distrust or mere curiosity? It was one or the other. And it always unnerved George just at the time when he felt he'd made it and was accepted. We all feel a sense of guilt and blame that our support was not enough. But our appeals to an organisation set up to rehabilitate and assist prisoners went unheeded. The system, as it stands, is also to blame. George Wilder was released from prison for the final time on October 16th, 1973. He's never spoken publicly since then. We don't really know why, but Tim Baum has a couple of guesses. It's important to remember that when he did get apprehended again in, um, in that motor camp, he was at the lowest point. A lot of people had helped him get out on that early parole, and he felt like he'd let them down. And I, so I think it was a, it was it comes from a place of being embarrassed that this had happened again and whatever deal he made with himself at that point he he stuck with it I think part of that deal was I'm not going to talk about it that was then this is now we move on and to be fair he's, he's, he's stuck to that I mean a lot of as you say a lot of journalists have, have rung him up or tried to find him and he just says, nah, don't want to talk about it. Which begs the question, why are we talking about it? I haven't been able to reach him directly, but I think it's fair to assume George Wilder still wants his story to be forgotten. Surely we should respect that. Well, to be honest, part of my justification is that it's just too good a story not to tell, and it was such a massive event in New Zealand cultural history. But I do have another excuse. This isn't just a story about George Wilder. It's a story about the criminal justice system. Because for all his crazy hijinks, George was just a kid with a tough family background who got in over his head. In some ways, his fame was a good thing. It got him support in high places. A lot of other prisoners never got the chances he got. That's something he acknowledged in his interview with the Sunday Times, talking about one of the guys he escaped with back in 1962. Pat Wirawina had a smaller sentence than me. 
but now he's ended up with preventative detention. After all this time, I've beaten him out because he's had no one helping him. He's a forgotten man and I feel very bad about being out and seeing him still stuck in there. The nearest thing I can liken prison to is a battery poultry farm, which turns out twisted human beings. These are still live issues today. Like, the day I was interviewing Tim Balm, this was the lead story on RNZ's Morning Report programme. The Department of Corrections will conduct an urgent overhaul and review of women's prisons ordered by the minister in charge. It follows revelations by RNZ of the cruel and inhumane treatment of Mickey Bassett and Karma Cripps gassed in their cells... Behind those closed gates, behind those walls, we, as the general public, we really don't know what's going on there. And although I've never met the man and I never will, I have great aroha for his his story. It is worth acknowledging and celebrating to an extent if, from it, we can learn something. Do you know if George Wilde ever saw your play? <laughs> Funny you should say that. Um, I did a lot of a very large-scale national tours of it a couple of times, and I played in a small town in the Wairarapa called Paihiatua. More than once, actually. I did two visits there. And that was very close to where he was living at the time. And my technician, he told me the story once, which was, he said, oh, you know, during the, during the show, this, this guy who, who kind of looks like how I think he looks was standing at the back, and then he disappeared just before it ended. And he was convinced it was him. <laughs> but, like George Wilder's stories, you know, you, I'll never know whether it was true or not. Thanks to my guest Tim Balm, who very kindly provided a lot of his original research material for this show. I'd also like to thank the Howard Morrison Farno for giving us permission to use the Wild New Zealand Boy song. And I'll uh, apologise on behalf of RNZ for banning it all those years ago. Black Sheep is written and presented by me, William Ray. The sound engineer is Phil Benge and Steve Burridge. The executive producer is Tim Watkin. Playing the role of George Wilder was my good mate James Kane. We also had voice acting help from Duncan Smith, Sonia Yee, Simon Dickinson, Max Toll, John Gerritsen and Kim Savage. For more Black Sheep, make sure to follow us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever else you find good podcasts. And speaking of good podcasts, we have a new one in the works and it's called Generation COVID. It tells the stories of the COVID-19 lockdown through the eyes of young New Zealanders. So keep an eye out for that on the podcast page at rnz.co.nz. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.